So this is a 14th century painting entitled The Lamentation. Uh, Giotto was the Italian artist, and uh, the work is immense. It's over seven feet wide and seven feet tall. Uh, so it's sort of just the size of it sort of draws you in uh, to the action. And the other thing that Giotto does here that I think is really significant, you'll notice that there's a couple of figures in the foreground of the painting with their backs to us. And it's almost as if we are coming in alongside of them to observe what's happening here in this scene. The scene at the foot of the cross, the intense sorrow at the foot of the cross. And in addition to the human participants in the foreground, there are angels looking on from the spiritual realm. Uh, and you can't maybe see it real clearly, but they too have expressions of grief on their face uh, as they look on the unthinkable, right? The Son of God uh, submitting himself to death uh, for the sins of humanity. A young apostle John flails his arms and leans out over the body of the crucified Jesus. Mary Magdalene holds Jesus' pierced feet in her hands. But the focal point is on Mary, the mother of Jesus, who holds her son's head in her arms and weeps in anguish. At Jesus' birth, Mary had been told that a sword would pierce her own soul, and that prophecy would certainly be fulfilled here at the foot of the cross. We can't imagine the emotions that she would have felt. Uh, thankfully, the scriptures do not downplay human suffering and grief. They are recognized as universal human emotions. When we're in the midst of suffering, when we're going through uh, a tragic situation, uh, we sometimes can feel very isolated and alone. It is strangely comforting to know that we are not alone in our grief. Uh, we are not the only ones to walk this road. Job suffered. Joseph suffered. Elijah suffered. Jesus' followers all suffered. Jesus himself suffered in an unimaginable way and is able to sympathize with us in our human condition. And our text this morning in Lamentations affirms God's heart towards those who suffer. We hear uh, uh, individuals calling out and crying out to God. We have a model for how to go to God uh, in the midst of the things of life that we can't understand, right? The things that stir us to great grief. We can be thankful that the book of Lamentations is in our Bibles, Right? Uh, it's not just uh, all the happy stories that are told, but we're also told the dark side of, uh, of our lives. Uh, we're, we're come face to face with failures and brokenness and death and pain. And uh, we, we, we get a template here, a primer for how to respond to these things. Well, here in the book of Lamentations is another profound scene of suffering and grief. The fall, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. This is the backdrop. The author is not identified, but Jewish tradition attributes it to the prophet Jeremiah. 
it is clear that whoever wrote these poems was present at the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the sights, he heard the sounds, he smelled the smells, and he is able to convey it with great uh, specificity and vivid color. And we know that Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who endured this tragedy, right? He's the one that walked alongside the nation in these dark days. The book of Jeremiah anticipates the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. Lamentations reflects back on it. The history is recorded in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, the, the nuts and bolts, the facts of the siege and the fall of Jerusalem. But Lamentations records the pathos and the emotions and the drama of these dark days. Lamentations also describes a time of communal grief. Uh, yes, it's a poet who is writing these poems of lament, but clearly it was intended to be uh, a, a, a communal uh, time of remembrance. A terrible, tragic death has taken place. Jerusalem has fallen, and the loss of Jerusalem signaled the death of the nation of Israel. So it's, 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 it's a funeral setting, <laughs> Uh, that's going on here. The, the ruling line of David, the priests, the sacrifices, the temple, even the promised land were gone. And so I've suggested the imagery of a wake. Uh, a wake is a social gathering that is connected with death. Uh, a funeral is a formal ceremony. Usually there's a person officiating the funeral and there's prayers that are offered and scriptures that are read and proclaimed. If you come to a funeral, you're oftentimes an observer in large part. Right? You're there to listen. Uh, but a wake, or we often call it a visitation, is a time when you come alongside of the family and you put your arm around them and you embrace them and you just express your sorrow over their loss. And um, maybe you recount uh, some way in which that person impacted you and left a mark in your life and you want to encourage uh, the family uh, at that time. So uh, a wake or visitation is a very participatory type of event. And I would suggest to you that is at least in part what is going on here. The nation of Israel has died. And the poet is reflecting, creating a memorial, offering a eulogy uh, to remember this great city. A couple of years ago, our family visited the Vietnam Memorial. We walked slowly along those dark granite panels with the thousands of names of the individuals who gave their lives uh, in that particular conflict. My father happened to be with us at that, uh, that visit. And as we're walking, he said, you know, I had a classmate that was killed in the Vietnam War. And we said, well, what was his name? And he thought for a moment, and we looked it up, and and found the panel on which that name was recorded. And uh, my dad did a little etching on a piece of paper there with a pencil just to kind of take that. He wanted to go back and talk to uh, the family who still lives in our hometown. Um, and there was something very powerful that happened there that day. I don't think my kids would say it was the highlight of the trip. But there was sort of a, it, was, it wasn't just my dad. It was significant for my dad. But we were all able to, kind of, my kids learned some lessons about history and about life. And uh, heard someone's story that day. And it was a very meaningful time for us as, as a family. 
Uh, something similar is going on here in Lamentations. Right? This is a written eulogy, a memorial intended to capture and remember the nation of Israel, and specifically the city of Jerusalem. Now, lament is not familiar territory for us. Uh, we are not used to giving expression to our sorrow. We tend to be a rather reserved culture. We keep a stiff, stiff upper lip. We like to kind of keep things positive. Uh, when someone does give way, give vent to their grief, we're a little bit uh, unsure as to how to react. We quickly attempt to say something encouraging, to look on the bright side. Uh, we, we need some lessons in this area of lament, all right, to think of what that means. I need some lessons. So we need to kind of enter into the, the mindset and culture of the Hebrew people if we're going to understand this really unique genre of lament. So just a couple comments at the outset. Lamentations involves the pouring out of deep grief. Involves the pouring out of deep grief. Now we call this book Lamentations. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, they would name a book by the first word of the book. The first word in the book here of Lamentations is the word how. Or we might say, alas, or Ugh. Right? I mean, this is just a, a, a guttural response here that begins chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Um, David, King David, used this word after his good friend Jonathan died in battle. How the mighty have fallen. Ah, Just a, a, an expression of sorrow and actually a bit of a question, Right? How? How? We lament when we bring our vexing questions, the vexing questions of our lives to God. Do you have vexing questions in your life? If you don't, I could share a few and you could experience them vicariously, right? We all have vexing questions, right? Untimely death, uh, persistent physical trials, broken relationships, betrayals, vocational paths that have not turned out like we thought that they would right what do we do with those things uh, we are to take them to the lord in the form of lament hebrew poetry makes extensive use of parallelism just another thing to latch on to we've talked about this uh, in pro in uh, psalms and proverbs and all of the the the, the hebrew poetry um I'll read you an example in which there are two lines. The second line restates or reaffirms the first line. Okay? Uh, Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie in ash heaps. Right? So... The author is saying essentially the same thing. He's just restating it for emphasis to add color. Sometimes those two statements contrast where the matter is stated positively and then stated negatively. Uh, but that is one of the mechanisms of Hebrew poetry that we would do well to be aware of. Lamentations is carefully crafted and includes five poems written in an acrostic format. 
So in some of the books we've looked at, I've had to say to you, look, the, the chapter and verse distinctions are arbitrary. They were added later, and um, sometimes they get in the way a little bit. They break up trains of thought. But here in Lamentations, those chapter divisions are legit, right? They represent five distinct poems that are brought together in uh, a single work. And they are in an acrostic format. While, while it isn't evident in our English translations, uh, they begin with uh, letters, succeeding letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So chapters 1, 2, and 4 have 22 verses in those chapters. And that's because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 has 66 verses. The first three verses all begin with the letter A. The second three verses all begin with the letter B. The third three verses all begin with the letter C. You get the picture, right? So there's a sort of interesting way in which the material is organized. Why? It was an aid for memory. You've all read the ABC books to your kids, right? And you know, you know it kind of locks it in a little bit for you when you read something like that. Uh, it also symbolized completeness. So part of what the poet is saying, he's recounting the sufferings of God's people from A to Z, right? Uh, there's sort of this sense of fullness to the lament. It provides structure and direction. Uh, we have all been to funerals where someone babbles on in their grief, right, and doesn't quite know how to land the plane. Uh, the poet here is very intentional with expressing his grief uh, in a concise way. What I want you to, to notice here is that lament is not just a matter of being emotional. You say, Pastor, I'm an introvert. Like I, it's, I'm not just going to... Well, I'm going to suggest to you that this poet here in Lamentations did not... This was a carefully crafted, well thought through, settled grief that he communicated uh, by means of these poems. So it's not just bare emotion. Okay? Grief is for, lament is for introverts and extroverts. Okay? Let's put it that way. A grief is communicated through a distinctive limping meter. So Jeremiah chose to write with a very distinctive rhythm to the writing. It involved a 3-2 pattern, an imbalanced pattern. It had a certain sing-song feel to it as it would be read. That's why it's called a limping meter. It's the meter of lament. <laughs> so it's not only the words that convey grief, but even the form of the poem that sets the mood, much like a minor key. Right? In other words, a certain amount is communicated by the words of a song, but the rest of it is communicated by the minor key. <laughs> right? you, 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 you come in on a movie and you know what kind of a movie it is as you hear the soundtrack. Right? Or you at least know where you're landing in the movie based on the soundtrack. And a similar uh, dynamic is true with Hebrew poetry, particularly the kind of poetry we find here in Lamentations. Now, we're not going to spend uh, time here. That's why I've just uh, 
not giving you any blanks in this section on your outline here, but this would be maybe a brief, simplistic way of thinking about the five poems. The first expresses grief. A uh, matter of fact, uh, Jeremiah not only uses his own words to describe uh, the grief, but he actually speaks as Jerusalem personified. We actually hear from Jerusalem. We hear what she is feeling. We hear her pain and her struggle. Uh, uh, in chapter 2, there's the cause. The poet begins to um, wrestle with why they found themselves in this situation. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Chapter 3, where Matt read from this morning, that's a section, expanded section there at the center uh, that has a great theme of hope in the midst of lament. Uh, chapter 4, uh, we, get a, we get a glimpse at how the people respond to their suffering, and there is some measure of response, particularly this response of repentance, acknowledgement of, of sin. And then chapter 5 is a prayer in which the poet really and the people just call out to God uh, to show up, to, to restore them, to return to them once again. Well, I've tried to uh, succinctly state some takeaways here, what I'm calling lessons uh, in the school of lament. And so we'll, we'll spend uh, our, our remaining uh, moments here uh, thinking through four key lessons from lamentations. Number one, grieve with deep anguish. It is a call to grieve over sin and brokenness and tragedy and pain and suffering. Mentioned that uh, Jerusalem is personified here in Lamentations. We see it right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. Remember, Israel had given herself to other lovers, the surrounding nations, and they are now nowhere to be found. Right? All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. She is... Calling out to others, chapter 1, verse 17, but no one listens to her cry. Her, her arms are outstretched, help me, help me. No one responds. She's humiliated, chapter 2, verse 15. All who pass your way clap their hands at you. They scoff and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? They make fun of her, right? How Far she has fallen. And this is particularly tragic. Particularly tragic because of what Jerusalem was intended to be. Right? A beacon of hope to the nations. Uh, what was in Jerusalem? What was centered there? It was the temple. It was God's presence. This is where humanity, lost, sinful humanity, was to encounter God. And instead they are the laughing stock of the nations. Jeremiah, not only, we don't, we don't just hear from Jerusalem herself, but Jeremiah 
describes the suffering of the nation in very graphic terms. And he describes a siege. This was the, the situation when an entire city was surrounded by the enemy. No one could go in or out. And it was a terrible situation in the ancient world. A brief glimpse at history. And nearly a hundred years before Jerusalem fell to Babylon, Jerusalem was threatened by the Assyrians. This was during the time of King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah knew that the Assyrians were getting stronger and he feared a siege. <laughs> so he commissioned the, the, the uh, construction of a tunnel. And that's what's depicted in this little diagram. Uh, the, the, the path of the tunnel was from the Gihon Spring outside the walls of the city to the, the Shiloh Pool inside the walls of the city. Uh, that little blue trail was 1,700 feet long, the length of about uh, six football fields. It was a long tunnel that they dug through solid limestone. And get this, they had a crew on either end, and they met in the middle. How in the world did they do that? Right Before modern digging equipment or navigational equipment, they had to plan a certain degree of slope, obviously, right, for the water to flow, and they met in the middle. This is the, uh, the description. It was actually a, an inscription uh, that was above the, the tunnel entrance that was excavated, and this is what it says. This was the account of the breakthrough. While the laborers were still working with their pick, each toward the other, and while there was still three cubits to be broken through, the voice of each was heard calling to the other. Because there was a crack from south to north. And at the moment of the breakthrough, the laborers struck each toward the other, pick against pick. Then water flowed from the spring to the pool for 1,200 cubits. And the height of the rock above the heads of the laborers was 100 cubits. So what an immense task. Why would Hezekiah go to such lengths to construct a tunnel through solid limestone? Because a siege was that bad. I mean, it was horrific. And Jeremiah pulls no punches here. He talks about how they were contaminated. They were unclean, living in their own filth. Right? No place to take human waste. No place to dispose of dead bodies. The people were starving. Chapter 4, verse 9 those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. And then notice verse 10. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. Compassionate women were so desperate. I mean, just the scene is, is horrific here. And that was all before the Babylonians broke through. Right? And then the women were raped and the leaders were executed and the young men were enslaved and carted off. Jeremiah could not conceive of a worse suffering. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. They say to their mothers, where, uh, chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, My eyes fail from weeping. 
I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? I'm hungry, mom. I'm thirsty. As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms, what can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? So Jeremiah despairs over the desperate scene before him. And Jeremiah shows us how to lament. He expresses terror, expresses bitterness, weeps multiple points here where he tells us about his weeping. And it is appropriate for us to lament as well. We are not told to keep a stiff upper lip, to hold it together, to just uh, smile and pretend that everything is okay. God welcomes this type of heartfelt response. It is an opportunity to bring our deep grief and grievances to God. We're not very good at this. And I think one of the reasons that we're not very good at it is because we haven't had to suffer as much as many of our brothers and sisters have around the world and at other points in history. Uh, In particular, we could learn a lot from the African-American tradition, the Negro spirituals, so many of which were songs of lament. I found myself thinking about uh, the familiar one, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, right? I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. Right? How did they picture themselves? They were in the wilderness on the far side of the Jordan, and they were looking over the Jordan, <laughs> anticipating when the angels were coming to deliver them out of their struggle, right? out of their suffering. Plantation owners often refused to allow slaves to gather for worship. They would gather in hush arbors, covert worship services in the woods or the swamps. And they would sing their songs, songs of lament. Speak their griefs to the Lord. We are not used to living as persecuted minority. But I have news for you, my friends. Our time has come. We are a persecuted minority. If it wasn't clear to you before, I hope it's becoming clear. And our instinct is to fight. And we live in a democracy, so we can have a voice. And we, we need to have a voice. Uh, we can write to our congressmen. We can, these are all good things. But I think one of the, 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 the lacking, one of the ways which we, we need to respond increasingly is by lament. To pour out our griefs to God. After all, he's the only one who can actually do something about <laughs> our troubles. And we have this modeled for us here wonderfully. We're going to actually spend some time in lament, not this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday. And specifically, we're going to think back and lament in regards to COVID. Uh, We've had lost lives. We've had people whose health has been compromised. We have lost ministry opportunities. We have strained relationships. And we're not very good at this, but we're going to give it a try. And just take some time to grieve over 
uh, the hardships that we've experienced. And so I think one of the, one of the just the primary takeaways is that we ought to be given to, to grieving, to lamenting when we encounter hardship. We also ought to grieve with an awareness of God's sovereignty. We ought to grieve with an awareness of God's sovereignty. These people had suffered terribly at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were a cruel and merciless people. So they were the enemy, right? But I want you to notice how the poet thinks about their suffering. Chapter 1, verse 5. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? Chapter 1, verse 15. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. Chapter 2, verse 2. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. And on and on and on and on it goes. The poet knows exactly who has allowed this suffering, and it is God. Yes, the Babylonians are there. Yes, the the, the Babylonians are the ones inflicting the immediate uh, pain and suffering, but It is God that stands behind all of this. And this, of course, is reiterated over and over again in the Scriptures. Satan afflicted Job, right? Giving him painful boils and causing the death of his children and the the loss of all of his possessions. But Satan only did this after receiving permission from God. And and Satan was only able to do what God permitted him to do and no more. The Apostle Paul had some long-standing physical ailment. He called it a thorn in the flesh. He calls it, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a messenger of Satan. In other words, Satan was somehow involved in afflicting him. But Paul knew that it was ultimately the Lord who allowed this to be present in his life. And on three occasions, he prayed to the Lord to take it away. He recognized that God is sovereign over all things. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus. Acts chapter 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Who sent Jesus to the cross? Well, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. But who who really sent Jesus to the cross? It's God. This all happened in accordance with what he determined beforehand should happen. To send Jesus to die for the sins of humanity. And so as we encounter suffering and difficulty, particularly uh, 
mistreatment for our faith, we would do well to always remember the sovereignty of God. God's discipline is purposeful. Our suffering is purposeful. God is accomplishing something through it. I really detest going, I was going to say I detest the dentist. That's not true. I like the dentist. I just don't like what he does to me, right? Ever since I was a kid, I just got really sensitive teeth, and man, I just dreaded going to the dentist. Uh, The only thing that makes it palatable, right, and I see this more as an adult, is that it's preventing something far worse. That 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 pain and that discomfort is is constructive. It's it's dealing with uh, an area of of rot, right, A, a cavity that could ultimately caused me to lose my teeth and so i think we ought to view our suffering in that way that god is doing something in our suffering it doesn't mean we like it uh, but it, it, it does mean that we at least can be confident in facing that suffering this perspective doesn't remove our suffering but it does keep us from being demoralized by our suffering Thomas Chisholm's hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, flowed out of Lamentations chapter 3. In the midst of our suffering, we should fall back on the faithfulness of God. There's a great line in that hymn, As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Right? That just as God was faithful to Job and his suffering, and God was faithful to the Apostle Paul, God was faithful to the city of Jerusalem in the midst of their horrific suffering, God is Faithful, the same God is faithful in the midst of your suffering and my suffering because God doesn't change. So we ought to grieve, but we ought to grieve with a a sense of uh, an awareness of God's sovereignty. We also should grieve with a posture of humility. Why would God allow them to be conquered? Why would God allow the Babylonians to prevail? Why would God allow his people to suffer so horribly? Well, the poet knew the answer to that question. (laughs) Again, in about 15 different passages here in Lamentations, he touches on it. Lamentations 1, 5. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. And so has become unclean. Verse 14. My sins have been bound into a yoke. Verse 18. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. And the the, the references go on and on and on. See, our sufferings are... A message to us. <laughs> a reminder to us of our sins. We don't always know why we suffer. Job is a good reminder of that, right? Suffering comes for a variety of reasons. But oftentimes, much of our suffering comes as a consequence of our own sin. Our sufferings are a message to us. We should not despise them or waste them, but take them as a refining opportunity great place to begin is to consider our sin. We can respond in different ways to suffering, right? We can, we can despair, throw up our hands, give up. We can become angry and bitter at 
perceived injustices, or we can humble ourselves, take our place before a holy God. I think part of our problem is we don't always view God properly. In our culture, we have a growing sense of entitlement, and I'm afraid it's crept into the church. We've come to conclude that God exists to make us happy. We somehow think that he's responsible to bless us. It's his job, even if we disregard his commands. So we come back to a proper understanding of who God is in his holiness and humble ourselves before him. By the way, this is essentially what is involved in an individual being saved, right? We come to the end of ourselves and we turn to Christ. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are beggars in their spirit, who recognize their brokenness. They are the ones who will receive mercy and grace. I mean, that pattern is repeated again and again and again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So here's, here's a pattern for how we are to approach God with humility with upturned hands, acknowledging our sin and seeking his grace and mercy. Finally, we should grieve with a spirit of hope. One of the distinctive aspects of Hebrew lament was this undercurrent of hope. It's certainly seen most clearly in chapter 3 in the passage that Matt read for us already this morning. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah's final lament there in chapter 5 also captures hope. They look to God once again to return them and return to them and to restore them. Chapter 5, verse 19. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. He just, they just cast themselves on the Lord uh, and ask him to remember them in their suffering. The lament ends appropriately without resolution, right? What will God do? How will he respond? Actually, at the close of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah includes a little postscript. I didn't touch on it last week, but I wanted to read this section this week. Uh, This is sort of the, the end of the story, the little glimmer of hope after the exile. It says in the 37th year of the exile, so after 37 years passed in which they were, the people were in exile, in bondage, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Abel Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. Just a small little postscript. But Jehoiachin was brought out of the prison. He was able to change out of his prison clothes. 
And he was able to sit at the table of this pagan king. And God was not done with Israel. It certainly seemed like it on the surface. But exile was not the end. And our suffering and struggle are not the end for us either. The end of each of our studies, we've uh, tried to consider how the, 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 the particular book points us to Christ. All of Scripture is pointing us to Christ. Uh, here, Jesus is the weeping prophet who would mourn over the city of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah weeps over the city, right? Cries over their sins. Uh, there, there came a day when Jesus would approach the city on the week of his crucifixion, and he would look out over the city, and he, and he wailed over the city. He said, if only you would have known what would, what would bring you peace, but now it has been hidden from your eyes. Right? He grieved over the sins of the city of Jerusalem. And certainly Jeremiah points us ahead to our compassionate Savior, Jesus.